for our brothers and sisters in this church and throughout this globe. God, we have no idea what it is like feel. They are small, and yet they are pressed on all sides. By a government, a state that does not protect them, by other entities that would come in and destroy them, We pray that despite their external struggles, that you would help them to stand fast in the faith of Jesus Christ. May their witness grow only bolder. May they not cling to life. May they not cling to liberty. May they not cling to property. But solely to the grace of our Lord Jesus. We pray for our brothers and sisters in North Korea. And we know the church is so very small. And yet we know that it is so alive. God, I thank you for those missionaries to North Korea. I thank you, God, for those North Koreans who flee the country and after having fleed have come to know your son, Jesus Christ, and at great cost to themselves out of love, have turned their back and walked back in that country, knowing that the gospel of the Lord Jesus is worth more than their own life. We pray that they would be strong in their smallness, that they would not shirk back, They would not shirk the responsibilities. They would not shrink back, but they would stand strong knowing who controls their history. And God, in our comfort, in our ease, in our ability to worship you as we please with no fear of persecution, no fear of retribution, no fear of any state power or social power, slamming our doors. May we not grow comfortable. But may we know what great privilege it is in this season to worship you so easily. Now we pray that you would uh, turn our hearts to your word, that we would not take it for granted, but that we would savor it. And may I speak it faithfully. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You guys can be seated. We don't know how life uh, turns out. We, uh, we are constantly surprised by it. And yet we think differently, don't we? we? We make our plans, we make our provisions, we make our adjustments, we uh, set our course only to have it upturned. And the funny thing is, is that no matter how many times our plans are upturned, we do it again. And we think this time is going to be different. I, uh, 
really made a concerted effort last year to, to lose weight, to get back in shape. And I had a plan. It was working good. I lost a lot of weight. And uh, then here we were. We were on a church conference out in, in D.C., a uh, ministry conference out in D.C., and I just I slipped on some stairs and knocked my ankle out for months. You guys remember me hobbling around for, for months with that stupid boot and the crutches, and I could not do anything. I could not get to the gym. I could not, and, and, and I'm not one for routines, and so when my routine was busted, like, my plan was shot. And I, I get back, finally in January, you know, I get back to the gym, and I'm just, I'm so eager to finally get back to the gym and do stuff, and I, I, I whack my back out of something. I don't know what's wrong with it. And so I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm hobbling again. I've put back on most of that, that weight. I had a great plan, but it didn't pan out. Well, as we continue our series in the book of James, and we're now in uh, chapter 4, verses uh, 13 through 17, James wants to emphasize to us that planning that ignores God's providential care is an error. I need just a little bit more room to maneuver here. Planning that ignores God's providential care is an error. I'm wondering this again, another one of these passages in James that are, is really simple on the surface. But we need to unpack it a little bit. James seems to have two different types of passages. Ones that are really obvious what they, they mean, and it's a matter of letting it soak into our heart, and then ones that are really obtuse. Like, what are you getting at, James? There's not much in between. But in terms of, of making this argument, James gives us at least five reasons. Five reasons why planning that ignores God's providential care is an error. And so we're going to look at those, those five things this morning. Uh, so if you have your Bibles open as we, we walk through them. But before we hit those five things, we need to set the stage a little bit and make sure we understand the, the situation that James is setting up for us. So if we look at verse 13, James writes, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Now James uses a different form of address here as he sets the stage for his point. We've been familiar with the use of the term brothers when he wants to get his reader's attention. Um, a couple weeks ago we talked about the, he, he called his readers adulteresses when he really wanted to get their attention and it wasn't such a positive term. He, he wanted to identify some wickedness, some sinfulness in their lives that he wanted to call them to repentance on. And here he uses something a little different than what we've seen throughout the letter. Uh, he, he uses a little different tone. It's not quite as warm as brothers. It's not as scathing as adulteresses. But come now, you who say such and such. There's, there's almost like a call. Let's, let's reason together. Let's, let's talk about this. There's almost a, a sense that it's like a father to his son. Like, let, let's think about how you've been behaving. There's a, a counseling sense here. And what he identifies with this statement, today or tomorrow we'll go into such or such town and spend a year there and trade and make profit, is a, a statement that indicates that we're probably talking about some rather well-to-do Jewish Christians. And we know that for a couple reasons. First, um, there wasn't much middle class. We know there were Jews because 
James tells us that at the beginning of the, the book, and we've talked about that several times. So he's talking to Jewish Christians generally uh, in this book. And we also know that these are relatively well-to-do because there wasn't much middle class during this time period. Not, certainly not anything that we would think of as middle class. Uh, the merchant class was not the aristocracy, but they were doing comparatively very well. So they're, they're rich in that sense. They're well-to-do. But there's another sense in which the people he's talking to are not rich, and this is important. See, James does not call them the rich. And that's important because, as we talked about all the way back in, in uh, chapter 1 and, and chapter 2, is that the term the rich was oftentimes a pejorative term, as it kind of is in our society today, a little bit, but more so. Uh, the rich referred not necessarily to those who were just materially wealthy, but for those who, because of their material wealth, did not see their need for God. And, and we know that that is a, a huge temptation for those of us who are rich. So much so that in the Bible, the rich are often, not always, but often synonymous with being unspiritual or even being wicked. I'm having problems with this mic stand on my face. I apologize. And so because James doesn't use this designation, the rich, even though they certainly had lots of material wealth, that strongly suggests he's not talking about the unspiritual or the wicked rich of his society. And so he's still talking to those he would consider Christians. So he hasn't like, he's not like telling his Jewish Christian readers about that group over there. He's talking about Christians within their own community who happen to be of the merchant class, who happen to be fairly well to do. In, in our day and age, it's hard to draw a parallel to this. And I'm far from an expert on first century class structures, let alone 21st century class structure. But the merchants, from what I can understand, were upwardly mobile. They had wealth, and they had a means to accrue more wealth. And by extension, more status for themselves, more standing. They were not part of the ruling class, they were not part of the aristocracy, but the most wealthy people in America are not part of the ruling class either. Uh, some of them might aspire to it, but a lot of them, even if they did aspire to it, and I, I know I'm saying this with, with Donald Trump as our president, but, but many of them, even if they aspired to be part of the political class, would probably find it very difficult to translate between the two worlds. Um, not all, obviously, but uh, a lot of them would. And so we, we can recognize those two different groups in our culture. There's some similarity there. On the other hand, where we have some differences is that we have very few people in our culture who are poor in the sense that the biblical world identified it. Because the poor in, in the biblical world, the first century Palestine, 
had no shot at upward mobility, none at all, or virtually none at all. And in America, very few people have absolutely no, absolutely no shot of climbing out of poverty. Though I would argue that there is a substantial number for whom it is incredibly, incredibly difficult. So I don't want to draw too hard of a line, but we need to understand that this world was very different than our own. Uh, and another big difference between their world and ours is the relatively significant chasm between the moneyed class and the poor. In America, if you imagine, what do you think as a rich person? You just put a dollar amount in your head what a rich person earns per year. And you can find people making everywhere from zero up to that dollar amount per year, right? I mean, you, you can find pretty much every gradation between those points. Not so much from what I understand in first century Palestine. Um, there was a top and there was a bottom and there wasn't very much in between. Not much in the way of a what we might think of as a middle class. And, and so how do we identify this group that James is speaking to today? How, do, how is this relevant to us if, if this culture is so different? And, and I would suggest that if the rich in James's day are characterized by upward mobility, the means to reta uh, retain a, a stable existence and an ability to make definite plans about the future, I said that's similar to probably anything that we would consider middle class on up, and, and probably a little more than that, uh, maybe upper working class and above would probably have been wealthy uh, by these terms. Um, I don't know. If we had to put a number on it, maybe the top 60 to 70% of, of income earners, uh, those making 35, households making 35 grand or 25 grand maybe and more, I mean, we think that's not a huge number. But we, we have to understand the disparity between who had and who didn't have in the first century. It's, it's a huge division. And, and the only thing I could, I could think of is... Again, I'm not an expert, but I think I'm in the, the ballpark. Take it with a grain of salt. These aren't exact numbers. Um, but I think if we wanted to get a really good idea of what James' society would look like, if we took the top 60 or 70% of income earners in the United States and, and removed them and put them in the middle of a third world country. That's, that's the kind of difference we're talking about here. So many of us who, who feel like we're, we're kind of the bottom or we're struggling to make an existence, we would probably have a very different perspective on our lives if, well, if, if, you know, I've, I've got transportation, I've got food every day, I've got shelter over my head, I've got uh, clothing on my back, and, and those guys have none of those. Right? This, this is kind of the, the distinction that, that we have here. And, and I would imagine... Um, it, even for those who are truly poor in our society, James still has something to say for you because the poor in our society are a little different than the poor in his society in that um, in James' day, the poor never, never could have imagined the possibility of upward mobility that the poor in our society have. 
It's hard. It's, it's a long road. It's difficult. It doesn't happen for everybody. But we can pick up any newspaper and we can read rags to riches stories, right? And we celebrate them and we make movies out of them because we believe that it can happen. And we believe it can happen because every once in a while it does, right? And, and that just wasn't a part of the dream. But that's, that's our American dream. And, and because this is sort of part and parcel with the American dream, this idea that we can pull ourselves up by our bootstraps and make our own life and, and, and succeed and be successful, um, even those of us in our society who have very little means to that have still bought into that dream a bit. We still, we still believe in that dream as part of our identity, as part of our, our sense of person as Americans. And so we have a little bit of a hopefulness that maybe James's audience, the poor in James's audience, wouldn't have had. So the, my, my point is, is that the economics here are very different. And we've got to understand that, that backdrop. And the reality is, is that the vast majority of us in this room would probably fit more into the rich class than the poor class in James's audience. And, and even those among us who are poor have resources at our disposal that James's audience could never have dreamt of. So there's still something here for you. And so that backdrop of these rich merchants making their plans about what they're going to do and how they're going to make their money and how they're going to be successful at life and how they're going to accomplish the things that they feel like they're going to accomplish in this life, that is the context in which James reminds us that planning that ignores God's providential care is an error. And like I said, he gives us, he gives us five at least five reasons. I'm going to hit on five reasons why that's the case. And the first one's in verse 14, the beginning of verse 14. James says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. James's first reason is you are ignorant. You're ignorant. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. The poor often understand this better than the rich. The poor, particularly in the, the third world and, and places like that, know much better than the rich generally that life tomorrow can be a crapshoot. Their lives are unstable, so much so that they cannot bank on tomorrow. And if that's not your existence, if your existence allows you to bank a little bit on tomorrow, then James is talking to you. In a short piece on dates that have often escaped history's notice, uh, Adam Goodhart wrote in the New York Times about a date, June 8th, 1610. I remember learning about Jamestown in social studies as a kid in American history the first uh, permanent colonial setting in the United States, uh, settlement in the United States, right? In 1607. But I don't remember learning about June 8th, 1610. I don't 
remember learning about what happened that summer. Goodhart writes, Three years after its founding, the Virginia colony was a failure. A few dozen starving settlers packed some meager possessions and sailed from Jamestown on June 7th, headed back toward England. The next morning, to their surprise, they spotted a fleet coming toward them, carrying a new governor, Lord de la War, and a year's worth of supplies. If not for his appearance, Virginia might have gone the way of so many lost colonies. What is now the southeastern United States could well have ended up in the French or Dutch empires. Tobacco might never have become a cash crop, and the first African slaves would not have arrived in 1619. For better or worse, imagine how different history might have been had they left a little bit earlier. Say they had left June 6th instead of June 7th, and they had gotten far enough away from the shore that where the ships coming and going passed, they didn't see each other. And a ship from England came to Jamestown, saw the colony was dead and evacuated and gone, assumed everyone was dead and turned around while they were on their way across the Atlantic. But they left on June 7th with all their plans intact about what life was going to be like again back in England. They had set their course, and on June 8th, much to their surprise, here's a ship with a new governor and supplies to feed them, to clothe them, to provide for them for another year. 24 hours difference, and it changed their lives, changed their country's life, changed the world's life. We truly do not know what tomorrow brings. We are so ignorant of the future. And yet we carry on as if it can be taken for granted. In the, in the next year, so probably sometime in 2017, someone in here is going to lose their job. This is, this is a small group, and yet we know statistically someone or someone's in here is going to lose their job. Some couple in here, there's not as many of them, is going to wind up pregnant. Just playing the odds, you know? Some single person in here is going to meet someone very special. Someone's going to lose someone very dear to them. Maybe something more dramatic, maybe something far less dramatic, but, but nonetheless, you're going to wake up one day and everything is going to be different than it was 24 hours ago. We know this is true. We've had it happen in our lives before. But we pretend like it's not. We, we like certainty. We like predictability. We like to know that we have a sense of control. And even those of us who like to live by the moment and, and enjoy having the confidence to know that we can live in the moment, I don't know what I'm going to do tomorrow. I'll do whatever I want tomorrow. Some of us kind of have that, that more free spirit attitude. But your confidence that you can pick up your pieces and do whatever you want tomorrow is also something that's fleeting, that might not be there. It's dependent on so many things, like your, your health, your family's health, your friend's health, your income stream. All those things could, 
make it impossible to live that kind of carefree lifestyle. So even that confidence can be taken away. We are simply ignorant of tomorrow. James digs in. In verse 14b, he says, the second part of 14, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. So James, second reason why this is an error to plan without a view to God's providence is that you're temporary. You're ignorant and you're temporary. It's hard to know exactly what James means by the mist. Scholars aren't sure if it's more of a puff of smoke or if it's like a water vapor. Um, but they all agree it's, it's the same, something along those lines. It's, and we get the meaning of the whole statement, even if we don't know what the, the mist or the smoke is exactly. Just like the smoke of your backyard fire pit is your life. It has no steady form. It twists and it turns about and then it's gone. When my family and I decided to move into Cleveland, and, and not just into Cleveland, but into the central neighborhood, uh, a lot of people thought we were crazy. Uh, they thought it was so dangerous, they thought it was so unsafe, that we were risking our lives, risking our children's lives, our things weren't safe. For years, my mother would send us, every, every package that she wanted to send us, she sent it signature required so that I had to go down to the post office, wait in a 45-minute line, sign for the package, and bring it home because I had so much free time on my hands. Right? She was sure that if the postman dropped the package off and it was too big for the mailbox, it would be gone in like 30 seconds. So like, there was no, no safe way to leave a package, as if like everyone in my neighborhood was a thief just waiting to steal my packages. And, and, and the truth is that in 11 years, we've only had three minor thefts, and two of those involved bi bicycles, which if you've been in Cleveland long enough, you know that bicycles are a hotter commodity than cars. Like, if you leave a bicycle unattended, it's gone. Forget it. Like, if it rides and it's clean, it's gone. So, and that's like, at some point, that's just my fault, right? They're crimes of opportunity. I've not been shot. I've not been stabbed. I'm not saying those things are impossible, I'm just saying they haven't happened, even though everyone thinks they will. But you know, uh, one night my wife and I were driving on I-271 near, near Beachwood. And, and suddenly traffic had come to a near stop. And as we looked to see what was going on, we came upon an incident. There was a, an SUV that had rolled down an embankment. There was glass everywhere. A young woman was was holding a, her baby. She had blood streaming down her face and she was bawling and sobbing. And, and I thought, should we stop? And I noticed that five or six other cars were already stopped there and people were, were out and, and helping and we could hear sirens in the distance. This had just happened. The, the rescue personnel hadn't gotten there yet. And, and we decided we were going to be in the... If any more cars stopped... The, they were just going to be in the way of the rescue personnel. There was probably already too many people stopped there. We searched for news um, about the incident. We, we didn't find what happened. 
Um, but we were struck that despite all the worries about how dangerous our neighborhood was, here was life. It was just caught in the crosshairs. We don't know what the end result was, but certainly someone either lost their life or, or came very, very close to losing their life in one of the supposedly nicest areas of town. Life is fleeting. You know, the, the well-off, again, that's most of us on some level, we, we expend a great deal of time and energy and money to protect ourselves from the, the smallest, tiniest fraction of a chance that something bad will happen to us. Isn't that true? I mean, everyone was commenting on how high the murder rate was in Cleveland last year. And I, I don't want to poo-poo it because every life is sacred and the numbers are tragic. But if you live in Cleveland, your odds of being murdered last year were about 0.03%. And that's assuming that the only people who can get murdered are people who live there, not people who come into the city to work. So the number is far lower than that. Less than three hundredths of a percent. Tens of thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars can buy you a fraction of a percent better chance of not being murdered. Right? That, isn't that the difference, say, between living uh, in, in you know, a, a poor neighborhood in Cleveland and, and, and living out in Beechwood? You're, you're spending tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars. And I'm not knocking Beechwood. I'm not... It's, it's, if you live in Beachwood, that's great. It's fine. It's nice. They, got some, they have malls. Um, but, but you feel like you're safer. You feel like you have better existence. But are you really? Are you really? The sober reality is, is that we're not immune. In rural Adams County. If you don't know where that is, I didn't either. I had to look it up. It's along the Kentucky border. Like There's, there's Cincinnati here. There's a bunch of nothing. There's Adams County. There's a bunch of nothing. And there's West Virginia. All right? It's, there's nothing there. All right? Had a rate of accidental death in 2010 that was more than two and a half times the rate of accidental death of Cuyahoga County. In fact, Cuyahoga County had one of the lowest rates of accidental death in Ohio. I don't know why that is. I have no idea. I don't know what's going, maybe they do a lot of four-wheelers. I have no idea. But, you know, the rural areas, they're supposed to be safe. They're supposed to be secure. You know, they're supposed to be at ease. That's where you go to retire. That's where you go to, to live life the way you want to live it. But our sense of imperviousness is imaginary. We are temporary. You're ignorant, you're temporary, and then verse 15, instead, James says, instead of saying today or tomorrow we should go into such and such a town and spend a year there and make money, James says, instead of that, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. James says, you're wrong because you, you're not in charge. You're ignorant, you're temporary, and you're not in charge. James began by setting out the reason why uh, 
those who say they're going to do this or that tomorrow. You know. Now he says, here's what you should have said. You should have said if the Lord wills. In fact, James says the corrective is, let me drag it out a little bit, if the Lord wills, we will live. And if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. He's even making our own living contingent on the Lord's will. Because of this verse, you know, a lot of Christians will append Lord willing to the end of their statements. Lord willing, I'm going to preach on Romans 6 next Sunday. I'm going to take this job, Lord willing. Lord willing, we're going to go on vacation in September. If we're not careful, though, it sort of becomes trite and it becomes pretentious. Uh, It's sort of an outward holiness that isn't matched by an inward reality. What I mean is it's good to use this sort of language, but be careful that you're using it because you deeply believe it and not because it sounds pious and spiritual. I have a good friend. He's a missionary now. He's in a closed country, so I won't say who or where. Um, Except to say that he's not supposed to be being a missionary where he is. Uh, We met him freshman year in college at the University of Illinois. We talked all the time. We didn't have a lot of friends. Uh, We didn't have a lot of Christian friends, so we quickly became friends because we lived in the same dorm. We had dinner together a lot. We talked on the computer a lot because this was 1997, 1998, and University of Illinois had a T3 line running through campus, and so we were one of the first schools that every dorm was wired with high-speed internet. And so, yeah, I could have gone downstairs to the basement, but I could just talk to him on the computer, which was kind of cool. It was really novel back then, so we talked a lot on the computer. And we took advantage of that. Um, and he started one day appending Lord Willing to everything, to every single thing he said. Um, I mean, it was, it was getting to the point of being ridiculous. He'd probably get mad at me. If, but it was like, you know, hey, man, do you want to get dinner tonight? Yeah, Lord Willing. <laughs> Are you on a Bible study tonight? If the Lord wills, Yes. Are you going to use the restroom? Lord willing. It got really annoying. (laughs) So much so that at one point, I think not in a good spirit, I just chewed him out about it. Um, I think he was well-intentioned. He was still an immature Christian, as I was an immature Christian. And uh, I think he'd probably recently been convicted of his attitude, probably been reading through James, convicted of the fact that um, his attitude about his planning was not always in the right place and maybe overcorrecting a little bit. But my goodness, give it a rest. I sincerely doubt whether he was really that conscious of the Lord's will in everything he said. James doesn't mean for us to add these words to everything we say. The apostles themselves, Apostle Paul, he, he makes plans. You can read about them in, in, the, in his letters to the Corinthians. He makes plans without stating if the Lord wills every single time. But it was always well understood Christians understand that God is sovereign over the affairs of man. He can spare my life, or he can take my life. On his timetable, according to his will. He can bring about my plans, or he can thwart my plans. On his 
will. All our efforts are contingent upon God's will. He is in control, not us. Christians know this. It's core to our theology. God made everything. He set everything in motion. He providentially cares for the universe. It's a fundamental tenet of the Christian faith. And because of that, we should never plan our lives in a way that presumes upon God's providence. Never plan your life in a way that presumes upon God's providence. Functionally, what does that mean for us? Well, it doesn't mean don't plan. That's not the idea, but we need to plan with a humility that recognizes that we are not ultimately the ones in charge. Very often, God allows the purposes of our hearts to stand, but that's ultimately His prerogative. And as we plan and we purpose our lives, we need to check ourselves from time to time. How tightly do we hold our planning? How tightly do we hold our own purposing? Do we allow room for God's sovereign hand to contradict us? Are we okay with God doing something completely different? Do we submit our plans to his sway? Well, these first three reasons feed into the fourth. You're ignorant, you're temporary, you're not in charge, you're not in control. And so the upshot of that is planning this way is arrogant. Verse 16, James says, As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So the first three arguments James makes leads to this one. And if we fail to acknowledge our ignorance of our own future, if we choose to remain oblivious to the fleeting nature of our lives, and if we deny who is ultimately in control of our circumstances, then quite frankly, we are arrogant. To boast, by the way, is not a bad thing. I know we usually treat boasting like a bad thing in, in English, but there is another sense that's more neutral. We, we might say, uh, Francisco Lindor boasts a league-leading three home runs. Or, she can certainly boast about meeting the company's sales goals for five consecutive quarters. That, that sort of sense it has, you, you know, is not a positive or negative, it's a neutral sense. It's, um, and it's a sense that it often has in the Bible. So if you're reading through the Bible and it's talking about boasting, you keep that in mind, because sometimes I know I'm you know, doing a Bible study with somebody, I'm like, why is he talking about boasting? Isn't boasting bad? Not necessarily in this sense. It, it, it's simply what things that you can hold to your account, what things can be named to you. Um, and that's why James has to clarify it by saying, you're boasting in your arrogance. He's not being redundant, he's clarifying there's a good type of boasting, there's a bad type of boasting. Actually, James doesn't say, in your arrogance, strictly speaking, he says, you boast in your arrogances, plural. Suggesting there are multiple displays of hubris at play. And that sounds about right, doesn't it? When a Christian fails to, uh, fails to acknowledge his ignorance of the future... He's also failing to acknowledge God's perfect knowledge 
of the future. When the Christian fails to recognize the fleeting nature of her life, she also fails to acknowledge that God is from everlasting to everlasting and the same yesterday and today and forever. When you pretend that you're in control, you fail to properly recognize that God is the one who is truly in control. So it's a, it's a trifecta of audacity. And that leads James to his final argument in verse 17. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is a sin. Uh, this might seem out of place uh, to some degree, so what's, what's the connection? Uh, we often think of sin as wrongdoing, right? Uh, and that's fair, because wrongdoing is sin. But not all sin is wrongdoing. Some sin is not good doing. It's the difference between what we call sins of commission and sins of omission. Sins of commission are evil acts that we commit. Sins of omission are good acts that we omit or fail to commit. For instance, if I murder someone, that's a sin. It's a sin of commission because I committed an evil act. On the other hand, if I never tell anyone the good news of Jesus Christ, that's also a sin. It's a sin of omission because I omitted a good act that I was commanded to do. So this is a general point, and we could dwell on it, and we're not going to. It has far-reaching implications for Christian holiness. But there are a host of things that we are positively called to do as Christians. And a failure to do those things is a sin. I don't know what it is about our brains. It's, It's miswired in mine also. But we tend to really focus in on the things that we're not supposed to do the don'ts of the Christian life. So, and you know, maybe, maybe it's the Ten Commandments. You know, so we, we don't murder, we don't steal, we don't commit adultery, we don't take the Lord's name in vain. But there are also a host of things that Christians are supposed to do. And failure to do them is not in any way less a sin. So, loving one another in the body of Christ as a church is a positive command and a failure to love one another is a sin. Right? Submitting to one another in the body of Christ, that's, that's another command, positive command in Scripture. Go and make disciples of all nations is a positive command given to his church as a whole. And so we all have a, a share in that and we need to be honest about what is my share in that great commission to tell other people the good news that that Jesus Christ died on a cross so that those who place their faith and trust in him can be forgiven of their wickedness, which would and should separate them eternally from God. And that even as Christ raised to new life, as we'll celebrate next week, so we can raise to new life and reign with him eternally. That's the good news. And woe to us if we don't preach it. 
or as John Piper says, that you're either a uh, sender or you're sent or you're in sin. He phrases it differently, but either you've got one of three roles that you're going to fill. You either are going out to the mission field, whether the mission field is here or whether it's there, or you're supporting to make that mission happen, or you're a sinner. You know, you have to have a part in the Great Commission, or you are committing a sin of omission. For James here, the purpose, the failure to acknowledge God, to treat him lightly by overlooking him in our daily dealings is a sin of omission. Because as Christians, we are called to recognize God's sovereign goodness in all of life. Many of us around the world are not as privileged as we are. And they have a more acute sense that if they live, they live for God, and they live because of God. And if they die, they die for God and because of God. But we who are comfortable, we Americans, like James's merchant recipients, we have a tendency to buy into the world's lies and to fail to acknowledge that it is God who commands our destinies, as we sang about earlier. And when we fail to acknowledge that it is God who commands our destinies, we're in sin and we need to repent. We need to turn our, our back on that arrogance. So planning that ignores God's providential care is an error. It's an error because we're ignorant when we do it. We're not recognizing the fact that we're temporary. We're not recognizing the fact that we're not the ones in charge. It makes us arrogant. And ultimately it's an error because it's a sin. It's a failure to acknowledge God rightly as we are commanded to do. So what do we do? We need to take honest appraisal of, of who we are and, and, and what we are as Americans, as Christians, and, and, and recognize that this one is a tough one for us. This is an idol for us. This is a, a difficulty for us because we are so used to being able to, and I'm going to, on Tuesday, I'm getting breakfast with Lou. I mean, that's, that's in my calendar. Lou and I are, are getting breakfast, and I'm like 99.99% sure that's going to happen. Right? And I can bank on it. And that kind of stability is just, it's just a privilege that billions of people throughout history have never been able to acknowledge. And that's something so simple. You know, and, and we, we carelessly just, we throw money in a, an IRA, you know, in a, in a retirement account. And, and we have our, our employer matching contribution plans and, and things like that. And all those things are good and they're fine, but if we're not careful our sense of comfort about how easy the future comes to us can lead us to misplace God in our hearts. That our ability to plan and our ability to, to be secure in this weird season of 21st century America, and it is a weird season, 
only exists because God has orchestrated it. And we don't know when we might be Syria and Syria might be the United States. We don't, we don't know when the upheaval of nations might take place. We just we don't know. And so we need to carry our lives with a, a humility and a recognition. Jesus is the one who's sovereign. He is Lord. Let's pray. Father, we confess that too often we are convinced in our own minds of our own security and stability and comfort and ease and we fail to acknowledge you. We read that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds from the mouth of God, and we skip over it. We don't let the truth hit us. That each and every breath we take, we, we inhale, because you still allow the, the synapses and, and nerves to fire to, to shoot a signal from our spinal cord to our heart and to our lungs to keep them beating, that those electrical impulses move at the whims of your good, great pleasure. You are so far beyond our, our comprehension. You are so far beyond our ability to even conceive of, of what types of things you do, what types of things you manage, what types of things you are planning and plotting, and we have these little tiny plans, and we call them grandiose. God, give us a taste of eternity in our hearts. Give us a, a sense of infinity. that we might be humble. And that we would carry out our days recognizing that today we have because of you and tomorrow we have if you will it. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.